With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Perception versus the truth. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Aaron on today's News Talk TNT Radio. All right, welcome to this week's episode of Connecting the Dots on TNT Radio. Uh, I am your host, Matthew Arrett. Um, I was expecting to speak today as, to my first guest, Vanessa Bealy, who is an intrepid journalist who has worked all around the world in the hot spots, the hottest of spots. Um, unfortunately, sometimes when you're working as a gumshoe journalist and somebody who's on the ground, these spots can get exceptionally hot to the point that uh, bombs fall on the city that you're in. So Vanessa has been based in Damascus now for a couple of years. And uh, this morning there were some uh, Israeli strikes that uh, did a lot of damage to certain residential buildings very close to the South African embassy, I just noticed as well. I think that was actually one of the closest buildings to the strike was the South African embassy, possibly, probably not a coincidence. Um, But that being said, the internet uh, access has been highly reduced. So we might have Vanessa join us. She's uh, keeping track of her internet access, but this, she says, always happens every time there's an Israeli strike, the internet goes down. So uh, fingers crossed. Until then, I figured I would uh, just speak a little bit about some thoughts, some things that I've been researching and looking at. Um, certain items that I was going to bring up to Vanessa's attention as well during our conversation, but I'll just share my thoughts on it. And again, hopefully she can chime in a little bit later on. The number one thing that I think is important is that as we speak right now, there is a summit happening at Davos. Uh, This happens every year. This has been going on since 1973 or 71, really. Um, It was originally... um, a cardboard cutout selected as a little sociopath who was a student of Sir Henry Kissinger. And I said Sir Henry Kissinger, not by accident there. Um, I'm not giving a little cheeky, cheeky jab. Um, he was knighted into the knighthood of the uh, of the Knights of St. Michael and St. George in 1995 for services rendered to uh, Her Majesty and the interests of the broader British Empire. This is something that was also This has been given to a variety of high-level managerial stooges for the empire since the 19th century. So Henry Kissinger has been a very hyperactive fellow over the the unfortunately long life that he had lived. And uh, after doing certain things, being inducted, initiated into the the Council on Foreign Relations, editing their major journal, Foreign, Foreign Affairs, in the 1950s, working very closely with Alan Dulles, and John Foster Dulles, he rose to become a, a steering committee member of the Bilderberger Group that was initiated by Prince Bernhard, who worked very closely as a former Nazi SS officer with uh, Prince Philip, both of whom created the World Wildlife Fund. That is, the World Wildlife Fund for Nature was created by both of these oligarchs. Um, and uh, and also they were working with another eugenicist named Sir Julian Huxley in the 1961 in order to shift society's values away from ending empire and making life better for humanity towards saving nature from humanity, uh, with the arch nemesis being supposedly um, human population growth and technological progress that allows population growth to happen. So this is the sort of environment that Kissinger was groomed in. And when he was overseeing a CIA-sponsored program at, at Harvard, um, there was a, a young German-speaking sociopath named Klaus Schwab who displayed some talent 
and uh, had certain family connections as well that made him useful and was he was deployed to set up the the, the davos the the a, a meeting that would happen annually at davos in uh switzerland and uh, it grew to become called the world economic forum soon the third one uh, third meeting was hosted by none other than or not but not not hosted patron patronized funded by P- prince bernhard himself who also brought in the club of rome a David Rockefeller funded program as well that had begun to uh, shape the idea that all national policy about the future, especially regarding uh, resources, have to be presumed to be understood through extrapolations of data in the present without any consideration made for technological progress. So the Club of Rome computer models were brought into the World Economic Forum in 1973, overseen and funded by... um, Prince Bernhard. And uh, and ever since then, this thing has been sort of an organizing group as sort of a junior partner of the Bilderberger Group. The Bilderberger Group, you got to be sort of a, a much higher level insider. I think it only allows 200 or so on average participants every year. Davos in the thousands. It's many people are there who are degenerate, who are just there to get uh, high end caviar, uh, overly priced champagne and hookers. And a lot of drugs that's that's what some people are there for is for the party other people actually are going there because it's an intersection of government as well as private um enterprises you know leaders of industry and they can do deals very efficiently to, to make a lot of money happen make a lot of uh business deals that's that's authentic but then you've got this other thing i think you've got groups within groups and then there's this this other thing involves a technocratic death cult which has been organizing to try to prepare for a crisis that they put into motion when Henry Kissinger played a big role with other trilateral commission members in the early 70s, David Rockefeller, George Schultz, uh, later Paul Volcker, um, also trilateral Federal Reserve chairman who called for the uh, a controlled demolition of the world economy would be a desirable outcome of the 1980s as he gave in a 1978 speech. Now, these trilaterals and uh, around Kissinger and Rockefeller, this is a big new, Brzezinski was another one, uh, worked very closely together to try to ensure that a once viable, productive industrial economic system would be systemically changed as a paradigm, such that value would be tied to a consumer set of um, metrics that to be a good, a good citizen meant to be a good consumer, not no longer would it be a good producer, a good uh, creator, which was the former ethos. And by being a good consumer, it also meant thinking about yourself first, thinking less about your your future, your past, your, your nation state, your world, and thinking more about just filling ever increasing voids in the shopping mall, whatever you want, getting into Visa credit card debt in order to satisfy ever growing wants. And that became the accepted new identity for people while at the same time they stopped paying attention to who was taking over their government over the dead bodies of people like Martin Luther King Jr., of Bobby Kennedy, of earlier John F. Kennedy, of Fred Hampton, of of uh, Malcolm X even, all of the, everybody who exhibited a certain quality of insight and moral leadership um, had to be killed in America in order to allow for the growth of this this cancerous deep state which was always there but it had but all of a sudden people weren't keeping in check they weren't they didn't care as much and that that disengagement of the citizenry into the into thinking thinking small 
thinking about my personal uh, happiness, my personal immediate people I can sense with my 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 five senses. That's all that people the more that people just thought in those terms, the more the oligarchy was able to win in taking over the power structures, military, bureaucratic, academia, everything of the governments of the formerly um, the former champions of democracy were very influential in shaping um, economic policy on Wall Street on the, on the stock exchange became focused entirely. Oh, I'm I'm being told that my internet is unstable. I hope that it it can it becomes and remains stable. But people were basically um, led to believe that to be an economist or to make a buck, you have to make money with money, with increasing rates of debt. And you could speculate on those debts. You could securitize the debts. You could put insurance on the debts. And these became derivatives or what Alan Greenspan called creative financial instruments. This became a time bomb, a built-in time bomb that people only knew how to think about in the economic realm as being what they said was the cause of um, of value, of of profit, and the real economy, the industrial base of Detroit, of Philadelphia, of, of the the various industrial zones across Canada or Europe that we had built up from the '50s, '60s, '70s. These were atrophied. Our infrastructure was atrophied. The nation state was no longer playing a role under globalization in the economic uh, system. It was all based on the concept that private vice is public virtue, and so we came to this giant bubble an artificially created bubble and um and i've just found out that vanessa has been able to to fix her internet and after the commercial break we're going to actually have vanessa this is great i'm very happy and this bubble is what has been um bursting starting in 2008 there was never any systemic resolution of the crisis it was solvable back in 2008 with the too big to fail ruptures, but instead, instead of doing something about it, breaking up the banks, erasing the un, the impossible to pay uh, debts that are at the heart of the derivatives time bomb, which outnumbers the global GDP by a factor of thirty to forty times, that derivatives bubble could have been wiped out, reorganized. The banks could have been rewired to abide by national policy for the benefit of the, pe of the people, building infrastructure the way that they were assigned the mandate to do in the 19th century, in the 1930s. That wasn't done. There was no glass deal. There was no wiping out of the impos impossible to pay debts. And as a consequence, simply a new decade or even more than a decade, 15 years of different types of bailouts, money printing, um, austerity was put into place as an architecture of uh, green economics was was built up, often managed by the same technocrats who back in the 70s had already called for the need to limit the world population down to 1 billion. We're gonna talk about this in the second hour with Cynthia Chung, my wife, who's gonna be on, and we're gonna talk a little bit more about the thesis of why there are no limits to growth in a lot more detail. But that all that to say, I'm saying in a broad stroke here, this is what was brought online. This is what they've been trying to do with the COP the COP Accords, um, the COP summits every year since 2009, um, the Paris Accords, which China pulled out of. China also said to other nations, hey, anybody can pull out of these things. They're not legally binding in any way. The idea of reducing carbon emissions by a factor of something like some ridiculous number uh, to limit uh, pop uh, temperature growth on the earth 
by a factor of 1 to 1.5 degrees by going back to pre-1990 industrial levels, which is just absurd. It's uh, There's no evidence that carbon dioxide even has a role to play in temperature, but despite that, they want to spend trillions of dollars in reorganizing the economy and bringing about a new type of economic system, probably after um, a great crisis, a systemic meltdown, at which time the idea is on a whiteboard in an abstract sense to then say the new idea of value is not going to be making profit or make or not making profit. The idea of value value is no longer going to be to increase productivity of anything. It's going to be make money by reducing the carbon footprint, reduce the impact of humanity. So this idea of green bonds, green economics, it's uh, it's deadly. It's another it's a euphemism for mass genocide. And so there are a number of nations of this world right now that don't want to go down this death cult path and reduce their populations down to acceptable computer level limits. They don't want to erase their ancient civilizational heritages. In the case of India, China, we're talking about country, uh, nations, civilizational states that are over 5,000 years in continuous existence with certain deep uh, value structures that uh, some would like to just simply reset, erase um, the way we kind of did with the baby boomer um, social engineering experiment that caused an erasure of everything that was unacceptable uh, before the 1960s. Pretty much don't trust anybody over 30, live in the now, just try to have a rock sucks, sex, drugs uh, lifestyle, and that'll be your new ethos. That was a big reset culturally, um, which you know has certain parallels to some things that we saw destructively happen in China around the same time. Except the difference was China ended their cultural revolution um, and the 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 whole cutting off of the olds, of the old ethos. That was ended and they've been repairing the damage that they had inflicted on themselves, whereas we keep, kept it going. Those baby boomers that, that went through that brainwashing became the leaders of industry in the 80s and the 90s. They became the George Bushes. They became the overseers of the revolution in military affairs who are now overseeing NATO and thinking that the universe acts like a big video game. Um, because they've all been through the doors of perception and can project their idea of reality um, onto the universe without any regard for the fact that the universe doesn't regard doesn't behave the way your wishes or your game three mo theory models uh, presume that it does. So all that to say, that was my rant, my opening rant for Vanessa Beely, who we will see as soon as the commercial break is over here on TNT Radio Live. TNT's Mark Morano. This just in. We have a new way that's proven effective in dealing with climate protesters who deign to block highways, streets, and other public areas. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this appears to be the most effective way. We have a uh, we have a field shot, a correspondent on the scene. Let's go to clip four and take a look at how to deal with climate protesters when they block your way on your morning commute. I don't want to see protests shut down, but obviously when you're blocking traffic and you're doing that, you need to be dealt with. I thought this was a great vigilante way of dealing with it. Mark Morano on today's News Talk TNT. I'm just going to do a little voice I wanted to alleviate my pain. I also didn't want to be who I was. I always just felt like there was just something wrong with me and I was trying to figure it out and I used the internet to help me do that. 
Seemingly out of nowhere, we've suddenly seen a huge spike in media depictions and social media depictions of transgenderism. It's even reached the mainstream advertising world. The people who are consuming this are children, 13, 14, 15 years old, and it's so easy for them to literally be groomed. I just woke up one day, looked at myself in the mirror, and asked myself, what the heck am I doing? When trans-identified kids are referred to specialized gender clinics, they're often told that they're going to get comprehensive, multidisciplinary mental health assessments. We know that that's not true. I was easy to manipulate. The ideology that has become dominant at these clinics is that trans kids know who they are, and therefore to question them is completely taboo. My childhood was ruined. Who's there for their detransitioning? Nobody. Nobody would help me because they had more concerns of me reversing everything. Did this thing to alleviate this gender dysphoria that wasn't there before, but you made it into a problem, and now your body image issues are worse. That's not supposed to happen. What do we do now? D-Trans, the dangers of gender-affirming care. For more information, go to PragerU.com. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome back to TNT Radio's Connecting the Dots. I'm Matt Errett, and uh, I'm very, very happy that my first guest, Vanessa Beely, was able to capture a, a little bit of functional internet and is joining us uh, as promised from Damascus, uh, Vanessa, I uh, I heard this has been a very interesting uh, morning and lot and evening for you. Yeah, um, this morning at around nine twenty or nine thirty, uh, Israel carried out um, a, an assassination uh, right next door to the South African embassy, which I'm sure is only a coincidence. They destroyed a three or four story building um, and we are now told that uh, there were four Iranian uh, IRGC uh, military intelligence guys uh, assassinated. Um, and of course, you know, they're responsible for the liaison between the resistance in Syria and the resistance in Iran. And of course, this is in retaliation for the Iranian strike on Erbil in Iraq that uh, reportedly killed four Mossad members and a, a, a very um, wealthy Kurdish businessman uh, who had been working on trading Iraqi oil to Israel for some time, um, according to reports. Uh, and But of course, all of this came after Israel had already assassinated uh, two IRGC commanders before Christmas, and then Ravi Mosavi, who was probably one of the most senior liaison officers with Syria. Um, he was killed in a residential area again in Damascus on the, uh, I think it was the 4th of January. So, and then of course the terrorist attack, which was reportedly carried out by ISIS, but I mean, we know who ISIS works for. <laughs> Um, that killed more than 100 people and injured 200 in Kiram in Iran uh, while they were honoring the memory of Qasem Soleimani, who was assassinated by Trump back in January 2020. So January seems to be the month for assassinations. And then, of course, you know, Israel has been, Israel and the US since Christmas have basically been repeatedly carrying out assassinations. Um, on Damascus territory, Baghdad territory, 
um, and inside Iran itself. Yeah, and th this is uh, really shocking. You'd think that Israel would have enough on its hands just simply <laughs> dealing with the mess that it that that it created uh, and has only made worse every single day since October 7th mm -hmm. um, with, with uh, a, a huge uh, significant casualties even on the Israeli uh, yeah. s on the Israeli soldier side um they're they're not doing well by by any metric but yet despite that it seems like they're trying to start a fight with everybody around them at the same time with Bibi Netanyahu even saying like uh recently at Davos uh this week that uh, Iran is the key that even if we're mm -hmm. successful at completely achieving these wild goals of wiping mm. out Hamas forever and and all of these things, yeah. then the then we're not going to stop. And he said very clearly, we have to rally the world against the true cause of of the axis of evil, Iran, while also bombing mm -hmm. Lebanon and also Syria. What's going on? Like, what do you think? How do you think um, the strategy well, I mean, is, is going on behind his eyeballs? <laughs> I mean, I don't think there's, and and I don't think it would make much difference if Bibi Netanyahu left tomorrow. I, I think you'd have four or five at least that would take his place and continue with the madness. I mean, Yoav Gallant, I think, made it incredibly clear about two weeks ago when he said, we have to have victory, otherwise we can't survive in the Middle East. And to a large degree, that's true. But what does victory mean? I mean, they, they, they don't actually have a hope in hell of victory because they haven't been able to sustain the ground war in Gaza because of the strength of the Palestinian resistance, despite I mean, the, the unbelievable genocidal bombardment of Gaza and the destruction of virtually all infrastructure, um, including universities, hospitals, everything, you know, that, that would, would keep Gaza sustainable has been destroyed. Um, and now basically they're ramping up for a ground invasion into southern Lebanon, where they will confront um, Hezbollah. And if they can't win a ground war against the Palestinian resistance, they haven't a hope in hell against Hezbollah. And by the way, even this afternoon, there was another assassination of Palestinian resistance in southern, quite deep inside uh, southern Lebanon. Of course, what they're invoking is the UN Resolution 1701, which was established after the 2006 war, where Hezbollah um, should you know, be operating to the north of the Latani River. But I mean, to be honest, Israel also violates the agreement because it has built um, watchtowers, surveillance towers, military bases on the border, just as Hezbollah has. So, you know, this is just a, a kind of a straw man argument to try and bring the US into the war. And that appears to be what they want to do. Um, is to, mm -hmm. to, it, it reminds me very much of Ukraine, you know, this, this kind of let the crazies go and, and do the damage and the US can stay out and the UK can stay out and the EU can largely stay out. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's a little bit insane at the moment. And, and to what extent, I mean, I understand Iran's reaction because you can't keep absorbing attacks against your um key people let's say you know mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so i understand them trying to to create a sort of a deterrence factor and that's exactly because the resistance access has actually been very controlled in its response it has basically been trying to restrict that escalation 
and it's not working. Like Israel is just continuously pushing the red line, pushing the red line, pushing the red line. And as you said, Netanyahu recently saying, um, you know, we'll go after Iran. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's insanity. And then, of course, you've got the UK and the US bombing Yemen without any congressional um, permission or parliamentary vote. It's just like, I don't know, like, the world has become a lawless abyss at the moment and, and there just doesn't seem to be any way to um, scale it down because you're dealing with irrational people in power. Yeah, I guess that's that's what makes this a little bit more like from the standpoint of a geopolitical um, analysis. One hmm. makes often, I think, a bit of the mistake. Like it, we make the mistake sometimes of trying to impose logic, the idea <laughs> that everybody is yeah. animated by logical self-interest in some manner onto the system that we're hmm. trying to evaluate. And unfortunately, when it comes to some of these uh, belief structures that are associated with very, very influential actors, it's not yeah. purely logic. You have a, a really weird, perverse idea of prophecy of yeah, some exactly. eschatological end times, <laughs> you know, bring back the Messiah by mm -hmm. rebuilding Solomon's temple. And yeah, by the way, yeah. we're somehow the chosen people because something was written 6,000 years ago and a book written 3,000 years ago <laughs> yeah. that uh, most of our people living in Israel don't even really even seem to believe in. If you go to Tel Aviv, like it's a super atheistic society. Um, and yet, despite that, this is like animating decisions that uh, mm. uh, are, yeah, they're they're very significant and very irrational so very concerning yeah yeah i mean you know you're a lot more informed on on that whole um end times cult than than i am i tend to see you as having this amazing bird's eye view i'm just like the little worm on the ground <laughs> breaking oh. away here trying to figure everything out from a on the ground perspective which is <laughs> equally confusing sometimes i think um <laughs> no vanessa but... you're you're uh you're 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 doing the most courageous type of work and you've you've also been able to keep a top-down analysis i do i know that some people uh get a little bit myopic in in whenever they're like <laughs> in part of like a hot spot or something but you've found a way to to balance out a macro view and keep your your eyes on the ground and actually talk to people um mm -hmm. and evaluate things on the in the process whether it's in palestine or whether it's in damascus or whether it's in ukraine where you were uh not that long ago overseeing the the mm -hmm. recent elections in East Donbass. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's very admirable. No, I, I but now now we're come to the point where I know Blinken, because I'm trying to understand the US standpoint in Washington right now. Um I, I know Blinken said something that on the surface seemed useful. It it didn't seem like it was coming from a very empowered place in Davos, where he and I think the Saudis <laughs> floated this idea of of uh getting some sort of a a ceasefire with some discussion opening up for uh, recognizing Palestine as a sovereign government. It didn't take two two seconds for this elaborate plan to be shot down by Benjamin Netanyahu. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's kind of like, you know, is is the dog wagging the tail or the tail wagging the dog? It's, but I also don't know if they're playing this kind of good cop, bad cop routine. That's what it appears to be to me because the U.S. is playing this kind of Oh, we don't really want Israel to do all this. Yeah, it's terrible. You know, we have to get humanitarian aid in while they're supplying more bombs to Israel to massacre Palestinians. 
while they're turning a blind eye to the ongoing, much kind of quieter genocide that's ongoing in West Bank, for example, where entire areas are being flattened and destroyed and hospitals being bombed and settlements are on the increase, which of course from the 70s um, was the strategy started by Ariel Sharon to prevent the establishment ever of a Palestinian state. You only have to listen to another crazy <laughs> Daniela Vies when she's talking about there will never be, as you said, because of these crazy religious reasons, you know, God has basically given them the right to completely ethnically cleanse Palestine and prevent any establishment of a Palestinian state. And when you've got Netanyahu using terminology like the Amalek, when you've got the, the AI um, selection of uh, victims, you know, it's basically a genocide factory um, generated by AI being called the gospel. I mean, you know, it's this. I is never heard just, this. So what, what is this? Uh, this, yeah. this what is this? It's, it's this, basically this they're using um, they're using AI to identify victims in Gaza because the the human um, was not fast enough to identify victims. So, in other words, what it's basically enabled them to do is to kill more people more rapidly and over a longer period of time. Hmm. Right, and this entire system um, is called the gospel. <laughs> So, you know, they, they're bringing in these incredible, as you said, cult religious um, analogies and, and terminology. Um, so it's very clear. I mean, the Amalek term anyway was, was, you know, if anything else signifies genocide, that does. Because it was the wiping out of the Amalek that threatened the Jesuits back in, I can't even remember how long ago. But, you know, the at Jews. the same time, what... Yeah, what, what the U.S. is doing also, so this is while they're kind of paying lip service um, to international law on occasions, but of course they're also vetoing ceasefires from the very beginning. So the U.S. is responsible basically um, for the genocide in Gaza and for the escalation because they could have stopped it right from the very beginning because why is the escalation happening? Because of the genocide in Gaza. So if they had actually prevented the genocide in Gaza, we wouldn't be where we are now with this level of escalation, which is reaching a very dangerous tipping point. At what point does Iran target Tel Aviv directly? You know, and, and you know, why yeah. does Syria have to tolerate being constantly the punch bag, if you like, in, in, in the middle here? Um, and the other thing that the US is doing very quietly and under the radar, it's developing and recruiting more ISIS fighters, both in the Huran area in Iraq and inside Syria at the al Hanif base. There are thousands of ISIS fighters there that are being triggered to carry out attacks against Syrian Arab army positions in, in the central Syrian desert area. So they're also playing their role in, in the escalation of destabilization because, you know, Iraq has never recognized Israel. That, that's another important point, even though the government may vacillate between wanting to kick the U.S. out of Iraq and so on, on and then wanting to maintain relationships with the U.S. At the same time, Iraq has had a very strong policy to not recognize the, the state of Israel. Um, and we know also, of course, from 
um, the new Middle East, the clean break strategy um, or the clean break doctrine and uh, greater Middle East. I don't think any one of them is exactly what it's going to turn out like, but it's very clear they want to reshape the Middle East. And part of that, of course, is to prevent the rise of BRICS, the rise of Russia and China, the rise of any kind of multipolar global south empowering paradigm. Right. Yeah, I always encourage people who um, are, they, oftentimes people will try to evaluate um, global processes in a rather kinetic linear way, looking for the causes of why a war is happening between two two nations um, from mm. the standpoint of the solution being located in the region that they wish to look at. And instead of looking at the broader <laughs> chemistry, the context, yeah. And it's clear that yeah, it's it's like yeah, it it both deals with the the Middle East, like the so it's not like we should ignore what's going on in the Middle East. That's 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 a spark plug, but it's important mm. to think from the standpoint of those who created Al Qaeda, created and deploy ISIS as weapons. It's not just to destabilize purely the governments, uh, and rarely ever Israel itself, right? Like when is the last time Israel's been attacked by ISIS? But rather to destabilize <laughs> the entire heartland of mm. that that in which these ancient civilizations of India, of China, of Russia, of Africa intersect um, together in order to prevent any type of formation of a real type of resistance of, of strong civilizational states to the yeah. oligarchy's desires and demands for total control. So this is just yeah. a very important thing. We're going to go for a short uh, commercial break and uh, we'll come right back. We're going to keep on this discussion. I want to ask a little question about greater Israel and clean break as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but we'll do that when we come back from a short break. She used to dance and dream of a better life, a brighter future, with nutritious food to eat, a chance to learn, to get an education, and do incredible things. Today, thanks to Children International and friends like you, she dances for the world. Together, we give children in poverty a chance to set their sights high and achieve their dreams by ensuring that they have access to healthcare, education, life skills, and more, so they can grow, thrive, and believe in themselves. Gracias. Gracias. Learn more about Children International and join us in our life-changing work at children.org today. The impact of a meal goes well beyond feeding our bodies. Because when people are fed, futures are nourished. Everyone deserves to live a full life. And with your help, together we can end hunger. Join the movement at feedingamerica.org slash act now. TNT Radio. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Aaron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we're back with Connecting the Dots. I'm here joined with Vanessa Bealey. Vanessa, um, what do you say to people who um, have a problem with the claims made by South Africa and many, many other nations that Israel has is complicit in a genocide? Um, and people will say, this is not genocide. This is war. 
this is war. This is not genocide. You're you're conflating conflating things. How do you respond to these types of uh, voices that are somehow still numerous despite the evidence to the contrary? <laughs> um, I think, I mean, one, go and read the 84-page document that the South African right. lawyers put together. You know, it's a pretty horrifying indictment of the acts carried out by Israel. But I think also check your history. You know, from 1917 on, uh, that was under the British mandate, of course, and then after the Balfour Treaty, the, the, basically the ethnic cleansing began. Um, coming to a peak really in 1948 during the Nakba, the catastrophe when 750,000 at least Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from their own lands. Um, and go and look at the map of Palestine from then on and see how it's been altered. I mean, the very fact that the UN considered that it could give 58% of Palestinian territory to an incoming settler colonial colonial project that was effectively established by the British um, is just unbelievable. And not only 58% of the territory, but also the, the prime agricultural um, territory, the best territory, in other words. And if you, if you start in 1948, then in my opinion, the genocide started back then, and it hasn't ever really stopped. You've only got mm. to look at the persecution, the apartheid, um, the, the abuse of power by an occupying force, and it's recognized as being an occupying force, um, but it's an incredibly uh, predatory occupying force. It, sh it has a responsibility for Palestinians, and it has reneged on that responsibility. October the 7th, it's, that's not where it all started, right? And, and now, of course, it's, it's kind of dribbling out that actually the majority of civilians were probably killed by their own forces, by the Israelis, either through um, helicopter fire uh, on the first day, on the seventh, and then by tank fire two days later. They're killing their own hostages inside. Yeah, we just had a mother, uh, right, who, who just uh, yeah. made headlines for pointing out that yeah. no, her, her, her son, uh, the evidence is yeah. that her son uh, was gassed yeah. to death in yeah. tunnels by the IDF. Yep. Exactly. Um, you know, and, and when you're talking about at least 30,000 dead, 50% of which are children, <laughs> you know, they, they demonstrated today they can do a targeted assassination. Okay. They can take out a, a four story building in the middle of um, a high security residential area. There's many embassies, there's the UN buildings. So, how are they not able to do the same thing? inside Gaza, if they're claiming they're targeting Hamas, why are they demolishing schools? Why are they targeting hospitals? Why are they executing women and babies? Why are they executing people trying to surrender? Why are they stealing bodies? You know, I mean, the, the list is endless. They told people they had to evacuate from the north to the south, and then they bombed the convoys trying to escape the north. They're now yeah. bombing the South. Well, the South is supposed to be the safe area. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. it's just endless. And then if you look at the kind of micro picture of what the IOF, the crimes that the IOF are committing against the Palestinian people, including elderly, including disabled, um, the torture that they're being subjected to, the humiliation, all of which, by the way, were um, 
actual Nazi policies. Total humiliation was, was one of the Nazi policies against the Jews and the communists and, and the gypsies and so on and everyone that they persecuted. It's actually written in the Holocaust um, uh, museum that this was one of the worst crimes by the Nazis. And yet, what are, what are the IDF doing? You know, taking prisoners, civilian prisoners, as I said, elderly, disabled children, stripping them naked, humiliating them, torturing them, burying them alive. Mm -hmm. You know, and, I, then, and then having high level, high level officials uh, using language like these are these are uh, yeah. human animals, or there are no There's such more things. There's five hundred citations now. There's a really yeah. good website called the Law uh, Law for Palestine, and they've collated over five hundred now citations of genocidal intent. And the incredible thing is, is when you watched, um, I think it was Malcolm Shaw, the British lawyer for, for Israel, and he's trying to dismiss it. These, these were just random assertions. No, they're coming from the prime minister. They're coming from the heritage yeah. minister who, who claimed we should just nuke Gaza. Um, yeah. They're coming from the defense minister, literally the entire government. Yoav Gallant, yeah. you know, let's starve them. Let, they're only human animals. I think he's even dropped that down to animals now. And they are literally being dehumanized to an absolutely horrendous extent. 1.9 million displaced. And as I said, you know, how can anybody look at the images that are circulating on social media of, of children just literally being eviscerated, beheaded, bombed, traumatized, losing entire families? I mean, it's no, no. you know, it's not even. Yeah, at this critical. point, anybody who was on the fence uh, at the beginning should should not have any ambiguity about no. uh, the the moral lines at this point. Um, you you had mentioned be before that I think that some viewers might not have heard about the clean break doctrine and Greater Israel as a concept, a strategic, uh, geo geopolitical, strategic, and very destructive concept. Uh, could you say a little mm. bit more? to um for those who may not know yet about what the clean break doctrine was and, and its impact on shaping um policy in the middle east uh, military mm. policy in the middle east for the past few few years or decades <laughs> well the clean break doctrine um i think was in 1997 um it was commissioned by netanyahu so you know his history and this goes way back and i think we've talked before about his relationship to yabotinsky who of course was uh, one of the early um, Zionists, but is, is an expansionist Zionist who collaborated with the Nazis in Ukraine in the 1920s um, against the greater enemy of the Soviet Union, you know, the, the Reds under the beds. The, um, the leaders of the labor Zionists back, back in the 30s would call him Vladimir yeah, Hitler. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, we have to remember that Zionism, when it was kind of birthed in the late 1800s, it was described even by Jews as another anti-Semitic cult. So, you know, it has never been considered to be representative of true Judaism. And even prior to that, Palestinian Jews, Palestinian Christians, Palestinian Muslims were living perfectly you know, coexisting perfectly in the state of Palestine. There was never an issue. So I see, I perceive Zionism very separately um, to J Judaism, although 
as Alastair Crook has said on many occasions, 80 to 90% of the population in Israel support the actions of the government. So, but, but that's a, a vast level of indoctrination of the citizens of the occupied territory. Anyway, the clean break was basically, very basically, um, advocating the balkanization of the Middle East, creating um, sectarian statelets, which of course is exactly what the West has done in Yugoslavia and, and what they've tried to do elsewhere. Um, and that would give um, Israel control over um, specific statelets. It would also give it the kind of moral authority as working with its Middle Eastern partners, which would of course include Jordan and Saudi Arabia, UAE, um, and, and the number that have normalized relations with Israel even recently under the Abraham Accords. And then um, I think there was one statement in the clean break doctrine that mentioned that the road to Damascus was through Iraq. Um, and so therefore the destabilization of Iraq, as we know, came in 2003. And the Bush Blair emails at that point are talking about you know, the future catastrophe in the Middle East, the potential for insurgents uh, in Syria, but that they would attempt to create a different relationship with Syria to see if they could sort of bring um, Assad on board. Of course, that failed dismally. But even from 2006, there was a Time article, Syria in Bush's crosshairs, um, which very clearly laid out that they would um, motivate insurgents inside uh, Syria to bring down the government if they didn't comply with the agenda of the West. Um, and then if, if you compare that to the Greater Israel Project, it's, it's, a similar, it's a similar kind of plan. And even the New Middle East plan is, is very much taking territory from here and adding it to here and um, creating states that would be US friendly by taking territory from, from countries that were not necessarily compliant with the US. And then Greater Israel, and this is what's astounding, was in March 2023, they call him Beelzebub Smotrich, he's the finance minister. Um, he basically um, had on display the map of Greater Israel at a conference in Paris, which caused outrage in Jordan, because of course all of Jordan would come under Israel. 70% of Syria, except the, the top northeast corner, um, I think 50% of Iraq, <laughs> you know, Saudi Arabia, of course, the majority of yeah. Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia is relatively happy with it, to be honest. You know, they're already they? sort of, yeah. <laughs> they, if you look at where they want to build their hideous neon city, it's right in, in the top left-hand corner of that territory that Israel will take, 50 kilometers away from Elat. Um, it's, what is it, 170 kilometers, um, basically a five-minute city. <laughs> I mean, if, if well, you yeah, I just it, it's, it's like, no, yeah, I, I did see it. Yeah, it's like a five hundred billion dollar 
crazy yeah. expensive city that but I, I, I wasn't sure how to think about it necessarily because it was tied to the high-speed rail uh, being built across the, the Arabian uh, desert. But yeah. you're saying that that's that in your assessment is is part of the whole 15-minute uh, trap, yeah. right? I think okay. so. Yeah. So do you think, do you think you Saudi Arabia is like a, uh, a Trojan horse or, or in within yeah. the BRICS I mean, uh, uh, process? Yes, I do. I certainly don't trust them um, mm. because even now, uh, even after the horrors of Gaza. I, I mean, the interesting thing, at the uh, emergency Arab League summit, it was Syria and about nine other countries, basically pretty much in that resistance axis, including Yemen, who put forward a very strong proposal to prevent oil delivery to Israel, to cut off all airspace to Israel or to any flights um, bringing supplies to Israel. It, it was about a eight, nine um, point proposal. And that was vetoed by Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and I think Morocco. Um, so at that point, it, it became very clear to me that Saudi wasn't playing a straight game. And even yeah. now, they're putting out statements that they're quite happy to normalize with Israel if it gives Palestine a state. Well, they know perfectly well that that isn't going to happen now. It's impossible because they've destroyed most of the Palestinian <clears throat> areas in um, West Bank. They've completely obliterated Gaza. I mean, you know, and we know that they don't rebuild after these aggressions. They never have done. Um, yeah. So, you know, um, and I think Egypt is also pretty traitorous in this. I mean, I've had experience of that when I was in Gaza in 2012 under the Israeli aggression. Um, you know, Egypt is charging Palestinians, even injured Palestinians, $9,000 to get out of Gaza to hospital treatment in Egypt. And this has always been the same. In 2012, they fired on people trying to escape the bombs in Rafah. You know, and, and yeah, I mean, Egypt plays, plays a, a kind of a dirty game as well it's strange because again like the the idea of the greater israel would involve taking the sinai peninsula and, and probably yeah. the suez canal as well yeah. uh it's, it's yeah there, there's definitely well, hmm. yeah i mean i guess it's it's that reshaping of the middle east and if they are being persuaded that that there are advantages for them to stick with the u.s um yeah. and israel and i mean you know, Kennedy, Robert Kennedy made this really clear in a statement. I, I think we talked about it a, a little while ago um, because I transcripted what he had said. And, and basically, you know, there is no compassion for the Israeli people or the Palestinian people. It's just all about geopolitics. It's all about protecting yeah. U.S. interests of having control of resources and Israel being the instrument to do that, which is why this reminds me of Ukraine because Ukraine is seen very much as the instrument that is being weaponized against Russia, right? Well, Taiwan I, is being we, weaponized we only have, against China. Right. And we only have a, a couple of minutes left. It's unfortunate, but I, I hope to have you back on. But but on that mm -hmm. issue of, of Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, and his horrifically disappointing uh, response to what's mm -hmm. going on, um, I, I, mm -hmm. you've written a, a piece that I, I suggest everyone uh read it's on your your substack vanessa Bealy substack if you google that you'll find it it's understanding power dynamics and moving beyond division 
COVID-19 mm. through Ukraine and Israel-Palestine. Very good uh, paper you co-authored. Um, many of the, the people who have been very good resisting the Great Reset biosecurity dictatorship mm. have been often very weak on foreign policy in terms of what is the enemy of America or of the collective West. And they've been tending like Bobby Kennedy to fall into this weird Cold War profile of mm -hmm. supporting anything um, that falls into this uh, Zionist narrative or, or 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 things of that sort. They're just they just fall apart on foreign policy and it creates these weird divisions between elements of the left and elements of the right within the anti great reset resistance. And it's very frustrating. And I know you tried to to present some ideas to help heal the divide, to get people to start thinking about their better selves and and what they have more in common. Um, but it really does require that people get smarter on the issue of foreign policy and geopolitics, because you could be really good knowing that there's a, a deep state fifth columnist of death cultists that want to kill you, <laughs> that have taken over your government over decades. But then to still use CIA, yeah, exactly, FBI talking. Exactly. In yeah. every other thing about about what's going on outside <laughs> of your little nation is weird. Yeah, it's kind of a bit hallucinatory sometimes. <laughs> it's like, how can you not see it's the same creatures that brought COVID and, and all of these kind of, you know, um, biosecurity state measures in are the same people that have been creating dystopia for the global south um, for centuries. Like, how can they not understand that it is the same and that in reality, while you're talking about CBDC, most people in these countries don't even have the access to cash, you know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a breath of fresh air to hear you speak and give a give your analysis. I hear the, the music coming on, so I think we're rounding out the end <laughs> of the hour. Or if people want to want to follow you, where do they go? Um, best place is my Substack, as you said, Vanessa Beattie. Um, Telegram, the same, Vanessa Beattie, I don't have any kind of fancy name, just that. Okay, there we go. Vanessa Beattie, thank you so much for de delivering some time, and I look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Take care. Thanks ever so much, Matt. All right, stay safe.